0: Marketing wizards found them. Software engineers found that project manager I could never seem to hire, and found LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, eighty-six percent of small businesses get a qualified candidate within twenty-four hours. Post your first job for free and get started at LinkedIn.com/spoken. That's LinkedIn.com/spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: To What's Eric Eating, Culture Maps Weekly Look at All Things Houston Bars and Restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map Food Editor Eric Sama. I have Catherine Lott from the Southern Smoke Foundation coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. He is a Houston Hospitality Veteran and a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. We follow him on Instagram at FulmerHOU. Michael Fulmer, welcome back to the show. How are you?
2: I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, Cherry Block Craft Butcher is making some big moves. They have closed their location at Bravery Chef Hall. And in the coming weeks, they will open a new market out in Katy and a restaurant this summer in Garden Oaks at the Stomping Grounds development. Uh, Fulmer, let me just throw it to you. I'd say Cherry Block has been kind of one of the leading lights at Bravery—it's that kind of casual steakhouse vibe, with a lot of Texas-raised proteins. You and I both know the chef, Jess Timmons, as well as the proprietor, Felix Flores. So, what do you think? I mean, is this the—is this the right move for Cherry Block to to get out of the food hall and into its own space?
2: Absolutely. I mean, some food halls were are constructed with the idea of okay you're going to be a lunch place and this is how you're going to, this is what you're going to do. But in many cases, they are in effect, you know, segues, if you will, incubators to going to a more a brick and mortar uh, establishment or reality. And it's, it's really time for them to do that. Felix and Jess have a, I mean, a ton of experience on both sides, front of the house and back of the house. Uh, So they're, they're good veterans. Their staff is solid. Once again, a lot of good experience there. Uh, Jason Tetford, you know, Jason, who was an assistant pitmaster at Louis Mueller, uh, and they've really kind of refined their their menu. You know, it's it, they're putting out good quality. Uh, they even had some stuff that was put into H.E.B. during uh, this past year as a to go meal that was of quality. Uh, and that new center in the Heights is like a, a, it looks fantastic to me. So I think this is a great move.
1: Yeah, no, I mean I, I think we can we can dive in just a little bit about kind of what Cherry Block is. I mean, I you know, I think they started as kind of the, you know, the, the steakhouse and they had the the ribeye and the filet and all that, but they've you know, as they become sort of more comfortable and, and maybe a little more dialed in, you know, they've really embraced their kind of southern side, right? The bit, you know, a, a cheeseburger topped with pimento cheese or or uh, you know, gumbo with smoked meat in it or or
2: The burger with fried green tomatoes. I mean, they they draw draw on a lot of sources and a lot of their own history and their own passions. You know, it really, the passions come through, the passions and the quality. And when those two meet, you know, uh, it's a great recipe for uh, success in my book.
1: Right. And of course, Felix was a sommelier at Brennan's many years ago. And so, you know, kind of giving him the opportunity to, you know, have control of his own beverage program and, and, you know, pair the wines that he wants with their food. I mean, that's another kind of layer uh, of the restaurant that I think could be really interesting.
2: Yeah. And they're doing the uh, I guess the butcher shop is going to be out in Katy. Uh, They, you know, both Jess and Felix have great relationships with farms cooperatives and ranches all throughout the Texas area and beyond. And so what they're going to be able to bring to that, I think uh, should be something uh attractive and, and impressive, I think
1: Yeah, and you know so again, uh, right you you sort of alluded to the stomping grounds that it is really shaping up to be quite an interesting little culinary destination. I mean, uh, fat cat creamery opened up out there and then uh, shoot the moon, Kevin Floyd's self-serve beer and pizza place is coming. Uh, at some point later this year, and and then they'll have the cherry block. And I know they've got another space or two that they're looking to, to fill. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, you know, this, this idea of being, you know, in a neighborhood, in a residential area, you know, especially now when more people are working from home, you know, they want to support restaurants, but they don't want to necessarily travel very far to do it. Uh, You know, it just, it seems like a real winner for them.
2: Yeah, I haven't been to the space, but I've seen the drawings of it and it it looks really impressive in terms of the ability for someone to go and have either a singular experience at one place, get something to go or uh, kind of meander and have a, you know, a multiple, multiple, you know, uh, location kind of experience where like, hey, maybe you have a a sandwich at one place, maybe have some ice cream at the next Uh, And then also be varied enough that you can come back and and have, you know, a different experience. Uh, I, I have high hopes for it.
1: Right. So fried green tomato burgers paired with fat cat milkshakes. That's a, (laughs) that's a one, two punch.
2: (laughs) I'm in. All
1: right. Let us move on to topic number two. The taco stand, the new restaurant from burger joint partners, Matthew Pack and Sean Bermudez has opened in the Heights next to the burger joint at, North Shepherd and 20th Street. Uh, You know, Fulmer, I think this is kind of an interesting compromise between some of the sort of upscale, you know, taqueria type concepts that we've seen like belly of the beast or or maybe El Topo and like classic sort of taco trucks, right? Because Taco Stand is making their own tortillas, both corn and flour. They're making five kinds of salsas. But it's all really affordable. You know, uh, you know, carne asada on a corn tortilla is two fifty. You know, you, you want a flour tortilla, it's three fifty because they're a little bigger and have a little more meat in them. So, I mean, I've kind of set this up and offered an opinion. But uh, what do you what do you think about this? I mean, I I know you're a burger joint fan.
2: I, I'm a burger joint fan. I like the way they run the place. I like the quality of the experience. I like the quality of the food. Um, i'll be honest with you i have not been to taco stand yet i have seen the menu uh, and it's the price point that is the most interesting thing because if you're in a certain neighborhood people can always say well i can go to this taco truck and get them for a dollar you know dollar 50 or dollar 25 why am i going to pay you know 40 60 70% more for a sit down experience um, but you know at 249 and 349 that's i mean that's very approachable having a good variety as well as having, you know, vegetarian uh, options. Um, I think their price points in the sweet spot, you know, uh, the challenging thing will be they have to do some kind of level of volume, but um, you know, they're sharp operators. So once again, I, this is, I think could be the right place at the right time.
1: Right. And they are certainly set up for volume. I mean, they, they have a drive through uh, so that'll, you know, that'll certainly help. You know, it's all fast, casual. It's the same, it's the same style as the burger joint line up at a window, order at the counter. They give you a buzzer, you get your food. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I do, you know, I mentioned that they're making their tortillas and their salsas. They're making, you know, three kinds of agua fresca they are You know, they have all these different meats and they're doing burritos, which I kind of like
2: and quesadillas you know,
1: and quesadillas. So it's, it's like a, it's like a, it's a taco truck style menu. Uh, you know maybe at a at a at a level of uh culinary expertise maybe that's a little bit beyond uh you know not the best taco truck certainly but but certainly your average taco truck
2: well their and, variety uh and their ability to get it out to you fairly quickly i think is going to be a game changer too um anybody who's driven in the heights in the last i don't know year to year and a half um there seems to be like a new large a to upper b list uh, apartment complex going up i mean there's uh and a lot of these places are getting filled so there's the amount of disposable income up there at that you know that age level that that will be i think it's going to be very attractive to that
1: right and and i do think it's you know maybe a funny coincidence that there is a velvet taco that just opened up across the street but you know they're they're very different experiences right velvet taco is kind of known for you know, a chicken tender slathered in tikka masala sauce wrapped in a tortilla, you know, that's a, that's a different style of taco. It's a very different experience than uh, what the taco stand is offering.
2: Yeah, I I think so. I think there's, and even if they were, you know, whatever overlap there is, I think there's more than enough room for both of them given that whole, that whole area. It's really, um, you know, the, the, the growth and explosion in, beyond just a single family dwelling, you know, the amount of restaurants and apartments that are going up there, you know, up is, is daunting.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, you know, just in the last few years, I mean, we can think about all the restaurants that have come, you know, to the, to the waterworks development where, you know, Ginia, Common Bond, Hopdotti, uh, verdine are, you know, all up and down Shepherd, you know, Cane Rosso, uh, Sushi.
2: Yeah. All those you know, little ships are slowly disappearing and yeah. become in many cases becoming restaurants. And, uh, I mean, I dined at, I was dining in the Heights just yet on, on Sunday. And, you know, there was, it was a good crowd out there. The weather was perfect. Um, it was encouraging to see that everyone, you know, I saw was masked up and, and, and being respectful of distancing, but, you know, it was, uh, uh, the places were, you know, I think, some of the places that are struggling during the week are certainly uh, thriving in the weekends.
1: Right. And, and again, I mean, I think that that drive-through makes it, you know, especially if you're a a busy family or whatever, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to get the kids out of the car. Uh, Tacos and quesadillas are always a winner. It's super affordable. You know, whether you're a, whether you're a, you know, 20 something getting out of one of the bars on, on 20th street or a family that's looking for an inexpensive dinner. I mean, this is, this what did you think of the barbacoa and the,
2: and the, did you try the, or the pastor or the,
1: I did, I tried a bunch of it. Uh, you know, I liked all of it. Uh, I liked the asada. I liked the pastor. I liked the, the Trumpo, you know, again, I, I wouldn't say that the burger joint is my favorite burger, but, but it's a burger I enjoy and that I eat on a semi-regular basis. I kind of feel the same way about the taco stand. I liked everything that I tried. Um, uh, especially the, I thought the quality of the flour tortillas was particularly good. And they're doing this jalapeno salsa. That's not super fiery. Cause they have a habanero that's even, even more spicy, but with like a nice clean burn that really complemented the meats well. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's kind of one thing to be there when you're, you're the only person in the restaurant getting a private tasting. So I, I really do look forward to kind of going back and seeing what it's like, uh, when they can't just focus on me, but, uh, I was, I was pretty impressed and it, it's, uh, you know, it's something that I kind of look forward to going back to pretty soon. I'm in. All right. And then topic number three, Bishop cidercade has opened, you know, it's, it's on canal street. And I, uh, is that, is that Edo or second ward or East end? It's like, it's right kind of on the border of all of those things.
2: Yeah. That Venn diagram overlap.
1: Yeah. Uh, but this place is huge. Uh, 18,000 square feet, 300 arcade games, 48 taps of uh, cider, kombucha, seltzer, and wine, all of which they make themselves. So you won't get any uh, non Bishop Cider Company products, and you won't get any beer or liquor at all. Uh, you know, this is, this is a successful, this has been a huge hit in Dallas. They opened one in Austin a couple of months ago. You know, I, I don't know that there's a lot to say about this. I haven't been there yet. I've sort of seen the pictures of it on social media. Um, but I do kind of like the idea of, you know, retro video games, ski ball, you know, air hockey, all that kind of stuff uh, in, a, in a big space where people can just kind of hang out and have a good time.
2: So it's cider only, though. I mean, they're not doing any beer or mixed beverage. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, and that's it's, it's all stuff they make themselves.
2: I remember hearing about this quite a while ago and uh, I was curious that that, you know, that that, you know, I, I know it had done well in Dallas and obviously well mm-hmm. enough that they were going to come here and do it uh, and, and we'll see. I, I know that my experience, like when we brought in, when St. Arnold's brought their cider onto uh, the market and we, we served it at the Houston Barbecue Festival. And it wasn't, like, the idea, okay, this will just be for the women. But, I mean, everybody was drinking it. Cider was was very popular. And it's, only I think, only increased since then. I mean, I don't know why you would, like, not have the beer, you know, when you can make the money from that. Uh, But that's, you know, not my decision. I think it's curious. Um, You know, I think the space and the whole retro thing and all the games, I think that sounds great. Uh, So, and that's certainly – an area that has been, you know, developers have had their eyes on different ideas for that for uh, the last 40, 40 years. Uh, so I would love to see something happen there. And, and yeah, no, this, I, this looks like kind of a first step.
1: I, yeah. I mean, I think people like, people like cider for a bunch of reasons, right? It's a little lower um, ABV than, than some of the, you know, certainly like some of the IPAs or the stouts, it's also gluten-free so that, broadens its audience Uh it is uh you know especially with something you know not that they're they're gonna have food trucks they're not serving food but it is really food friendly you know anything that's sort of tart and acidic is is good with food especially something rich like barbecue so you can't bring your own food so it's it's sort of easy to imagine uh you know picking up a you know a group of people picking up a bunch of barbecue uh from someplace nearby maybe maybe truth maybe jackson street maybe uh maybe pinkerton's uh, going over there, having some cider and, uh, and getting their uh, skee-ball on.
2: Yeah, and you, as a, as a new homeowner and has been looking at the real estate market and including in that area, you can attest better than I can how that whole area is changing and uh, the dynamic there. Uh,
1: right, right. No, and and you know I, I looked around Second Ward, East End, and discovered that I was basically five years too late. Uh, the, 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 the residential <laughs> the story market, of real
2: estate, right?
1: Right. The, the residential market has evolved sort of uh, really quickly. And, and we do see, you know, a lot of development in terms of bars and restaurants happening there uh, you know, you and I went to tiny champions, the new, the new project from Nancy hustle. We've got uh, Mary Clarkson and I talked about roots bistro a self-serve wine bar. That's coming to that area. You know, obviously, uh, Acadian Coast, the new seafood restaurant, Felice and I talked about on the show uh, a few weeks ago. So a lot happening in that general area and, and much, much more to come.
2: Yeah, much. I think much more. I think uh, like COVID has put like a, the brakes on some of them. I mean, as you know, often large projects like these large bars or restaurants are often, you know, this is sometimes a two and three year projects, you know, from just starting to pull the trigger on, on getting a place that, you know, when you put it in motion. So even though COVID has put, you know, the brakes on some, some of them were already in the works. So you just, they had to go ahead anyway. And uh, I think it 2021 20, looks promising for us to uh, come out of this, uh, you know, uh, never, certainly not on the timeline we all want, but uh, you know, I feel hopeful for that.
1: Absolutely. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. Fulmer for our restaurants of the week. I want to talk to you about a couple of meals we've had over the last month or so. Let's start with March. You and I had dinner at their lounge pop-up that, uh, that wound up sort of in mid January and, and, uh, is not currently available to people, but, but March, the, the upscale tasting menu restaurant from Chef Felipe Riccio that's located above Rosie Cannonball, part of the Goodnight Hospitality Group, uh, will, will open in its sort of full version, hopefully in March or April. I don't know, let me just throw it to you. I mean, what did you think of our experience? It was kind of our first chance to look at, at this space and, and certainly one of the most eagerly anticipated uh, restaurants of this year.
2: I was very impressed. Um, we ate in a small, the small bar area, uh, the main dining room, you know, not open yet. And it's a smaller dining room. I think we're looking at what nine tables there. Uh, you know, uh, somewhere around there and the food, uh, the execution on the food was just, it was fantastic. Um, you could see there's everything that they've got at in, in Rosie Cannonball, You know, it's almost like, the gloves have been taken off at March saying, okay, you know, Philippa, let, let's go for it and really put out the food you wanna make here. Uh, and so there's like, there's some things on there that were uh, just uh, not, you know, not suitable for casual dining or mid, mid, middle market, but, uh, you know, ultimately they were incredibly satisfying. And the quality of the service, which was incredibly polished um but never felt like stiff and cold um you know it was was definitely warm was all there it was clearly a very well-trained staff um and then if you look at all the details on the interior you can see they're all carefully chosen but well chosen you know you can see things are very purposeful in the color palettes in some of the artwork in the the tables in the dining room which swivel Uh, look beautiful and also add this incredible, you know, functionality Uh, you know, the little, the big dining room, the the bigger table they had in the back, which people will eventually see for, you know, so they can put a larger party. I mean it all. And then the wine list of course is the depth and breadth of it is uh, you know, incredible. And so I have really high hopes and really uh, high expectations now based on that experience.
1: Oh no, absolutely. No. Uh, right. I mean, you can talk about that wine cellar, you know, 11,000 bottles and they, they gave us a, a little tour of kind of what they're working with down there. And it's, you know, it's an impressive, um, it's an impressive facility as one would expect from, you know, a company that was founded by one master sommelier and David Keck and, and is currently uh, overseen by another master sommelier and June Rodell.
2: Yeah. She's amazing.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, it's tricky to sort of talk about the food because it, it's not clear, like whether any of this is going to like show up in the, the new menu when the restaurant reopens. But I mean, Holy hell, just like the, you know, a, a chicken valentine, which is, you know, certainly a dish that we've seen other places, but the the sort of the thoughtful preparation and the the quality of the execution was just really, really first rate.
2: Yeah. When they talk to us about, about that dish in particular, it was, it's the best I've ever had of that dish and that they didn't like par cook it, which meant, you know, <laughs> that, that, you know, that, that's a dish that can go awry very easily if it's not carefully tended to. Uh, I've worked in restaurants where it was served and it was perfect. Uh, you know, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what, you know, whether something will become established as a house favorite Um or whether they want to be a rotating menu on, uh, on a quasi regular basis. Uh, I mean, I mean, there's not, you know, you got to have balance on that, of course.
1: Right. Well, I mean, it, you know, and, and whether they'll still do, you know, sort of different food in the lounge than they do in the dining room. I think that's all that all sort of remains to be seen. I mean, Felipe did stop by the table and he did say, you know, we're going to explore different aspects of Mediterranean cuisine in different menus. So, you know he he trained in Italy and and stodged at uh, Austria French so you know I have high hopes for all of the Italian food that he might do uh, you know there's there's French options there's Spanish options there's yeah
2: by by saying Mediterranean you you allow yourself so much latitude on uh, uh, on you know bringing in the incredible spices from Morocco or like the like you said the, the Italian pastas and then everything that you know, Lebanese and Iranian and Turkish food can bring to the, you know, it's just, there's, there's a quite, there's some overlap, of course, as a lot of those, but like the, there's so much individuality and quality that there's a lot of places. They're not pigeonholing themselves and they're allowing themselves the, the move to be expressive. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think, a smart move as well as, uh, uh, you know, just an exciting one.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, so uh, just to put a pin in this, You're, you're looking forward to going for the real tasty menu. when? Oh, uh,
2: I'm in, I'm in with both feet. Um, you know, yeah, all the way.
1: All right. And then, uh, just briefly, I want to discuss our recent meal at weights and measures, the Midtown restaurant. It's kind of a good time to check in on weights and measures. You know, it was sold last year. Um, Richard Kaplan, who had been the founding chef retired. uh, Fernando Rios who'd been his right hand for a long time, kind of took over and is, is now running the kitchen. Um. Yeah, let me just throw it to you. What did you think of our dinner at weights and measures?
2: Uh, I thought it was. I thought it was great. Um, I was curious to see what would happen with the change in the garden, and they did revamp the menu. Uh, I mean, there were some old favorites there, like the I used to love the lamb chops there, and those are you know gone. But um, we had a wonderful shrimp dish as an appetizer. Uh, the pastas there were strong. Uh, and then I had like, I just kind of went for a roast chicken. It's, it's rare that I order chicken out very often. And that was just one of those times. And it was just perfect, you know, uh, the quality, uh, and, and, you know, uh, the service was, was great. It was, you know, warm and friendly, but you know, it was uh, professional and, uh, you know, anticipating things, uh, some, Things that I've seen, you know, drops in quality of service around town on certain things that have been a little bit disheartening, uh, and there was uh, nothing to criticize there about that.
1: No, absolutely. I, you know, we had a we had a giant bowl of steamed mussels that I, I really enjoyed. You know, that's a dish that can be a little bit pedestrian sometimes. It's not always um, as exciting as as it could be, but that was really nice. We had the the. The, the filled pasta that I thought was really good. And, and I had a, a filet, which is not uh, my usual go-to, but it was, uh, it was topped with cherries and served over black risotto, which uh, definitely got my attention.
2: Yeah. A dessert, you know, I mean, with having the bakery there, their dessert program has almost been um, you know, something you'd almost expect it to be good. And it still is uh, the desserts were, you know, well conceived and well executed. And it's glad to see that there's been no, Drop in the high quality of that experience there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, uh, I mean, weights and measures has been, uh, not a place I get to maybe as often as I'd like, but, but a place that I've been to, you know, quite a bit over the years. And, and I was happy to find it in good form under new leadership. And, and, uh, the only thing that I was a little bit sad about was that there weren't very many people there. And so, yeah, you know,
2: it was, we were there, yeah, on a, a rare Saturday night I was not working. And, uh, Yeah, it was it was not not brimming with the usual bustle of what a Saturday night crowd. I I don't have a good, you know, uh, barometer on what Saturday night dining crowds are like, because I'm usually working that night. But, uh, yeah, they uh, they were uh, not as full as I think, as their quality of their staff and their food uh, dictates.
1: Right. No, I I mean, I think as it has sort of uh, grown up over the years, it has become more of a brunch destination than a dinner destination. So, you know, let this serve as a reminder to anyone listening to this, that uh, there is good food to be had at weights and measures at dinner too.
2: Get in there.
1: All right. Uh, Michael, that, uh, that wraps up our restaurants of the week. Thank you very much.
2: Good talking to you. Thanks so much for having me.
1: All right. And I will be right back with Catherine Lott. I'm joined this week by Catherine Lott. She's the executive director of the Southern Smoke Foundation. Catherine, welcome to the show. How are you?
0: Hi, good. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Can, can I just start with what may sound like a, a silly and or obvious question? Like, how does someone become the executive director of a nonprofit organization like the Southern Smoke Foundation?
0: Well, I don't think that anyone will have exactly the story that I have. Um, I have... Uh, over 23 years of nonprofit experience, uh, administrative experience, um, and I was dear friends with Chris and Lindsay, and they um, had this food festival, as you know, um, that was really to support the MS Society in honor of their friend and Psalm uh, Antonio Gianola, And they went ahead and, and filed as a 501c3 and said, hey, can you just come in and and look over things. Just make sure our bylaws are in place, make sure governance is intact, etc. cetera. And uh, I said that I was happy to, we slapped a title on that and <laughs> called it the executive director. Um, I had two companies I was already running. Um, one was a nonprofit support organization anyway. So it was a nice fit. Um, and two months after I agreed to that role, uh, that is when Hurricane Harvey hit Houston, and everything changed from there.
1: Right. I mean, Chris and Lindsay had started this organization, kind of as an excuse to throw a party and raise a little money for the <laughs> yeah. National MS Society.
0: Yeah, let's keep it real. Yes. <laughs>
1: uh, and, and and it was a great. I mean, it was a great party, and it raised a lot of money. You know, yeah, almost 200 grand the first year, and and more ever since. But you know, all of a sudden, you know, this organization finds itself in a in a moment where. You know the city shuts down restaurant workers are suffering you know they had from various issues related to the hurricane and they found themselves in a in a position to help
0: well the, chris called me um the first day of the real real rains and he had just trudged through water on foot um to his restaurant from his home and um he called and said listen i need to find a way to get money directly into the hands of people in the food and beverage industry and suppliers immediately. And I said, well, Chris, that's crazy. I think that if that was possible, that's what the Red Cross would do. Or that's what, you know, many other, um, established large nonprofits would do. And he said, well, let's make it possible. So we, we did. We jumped in and we um, were able to distribute $501,000 to 139 families in need in Houston. And out of that, our emergency relief fund was born. So yeah, I, I, I guess that's a good question is
1: why why doesn't the Red Cross or some of these other organizations do what you do, provide direct cash assistance to people?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think now after years of this, that um, A, it's it's tough, it's very hard to do um, and it really has to be a a mission focus. Um, it, I think that they contribute in the way that they contribute by choice. Uh, I don't think that there's actually any sort of, and I know that there's not any sort of legal reason, but there's no sort of reason that I can hand over to you other than just how difficult and sensitive all of it is.
1: Yeah. I. I mean let's let's talk about that a little bit because whatever whatever you learn from Hurricane Harvey and and getting five hundred thousand dollars out to people, you know, the the last year has been more than you probably ever could have anticipated in terms of restaurants all over the country being shut down for the coronavirus pandemic and people being out of work and and whatever need there was for this organization a year ago is has, has just gotten so much greater. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we certainly didn't have a business model that was based on a pandemic. I mean, I don't think I don't think that that's a real smart one. Um, if we had, uh, yeah, I mean, there, yes, we we were one of the only organizations like us, and so we took that role and responsibility very seriously. Um, we the way that I I say it often is that we just started. I mean, we sort of built this boat and out of band-aids and bubble gum and ran into the storm and just grabbed folks to climb on and help us through it. And they added more bubble gum and scotch tape and whatever. And, and uh, then, you know, we, we set sail into a sea of a lot of folks drowning and raising their hands and saying me, please. And so it was, um, it, it was a challenge that was absolutely unexpected. And I would be totally lying to you. If I, if I said that I even remotely knew um, how we were going to accomplish what we have ended up accomplishing in the beginning.
1: Right. So, so how did you kind of, as you sort of started to understand the, the breadth of the crisis, I mean, what did you do to kind of scale up and, and get ready for the, the delusion applications?
0: Yeah. I think one of, one of the things that, that is important for me to say is that we stayed our course, meaning we stayed mission-based. Uh, we didn't all of a sudden start reevaluating things that we already knew worked. For instance, we have an awards committee. We have a processing, uh, uh, we have an entire processing, uh, operation and we didn't touch that. We, what we did was we beefed up. Um, and the way that we did that is we went back to our mission and we said, well, how do we find all of these people that we need to hire? And, um, of course, it just made so much sense at the root of who we are to hire people who had been furloughed or unemployed from the food and beverage industry and train them how to be caseworkers, how to be processors, how to be application screeners. Um, And they have been the perfect people to do this job because they're so used to being in the weeds or under huge amounts of stress um, or whatever the case may be and just keeping their cool. And, uh, And certainly, you know, the heart that that is involved in the restaurant business and uh, their hearts are huge. And um, so we have hired many of them to stay on full time with us now as a, as a new career for them.
1: Right, so, I mean, how, how big was the staff a year ago and, and kind of what are you <laughs> up to?
0: <laughs> so, well, so um, in January of, of 2020, it was just me. Uh, and then we hired somebody in February to be our director of case management. And then in March, we all got hit with this thing. And at our highest point, we were up to 40 employees. Wow. Um, we overall have hired 47 in total. Um, but we now, not including our Chicago team, we have an entire Chicago operation um, that, is, that is operating uh, on contract labor. Um, but we are 10 full-time people large now. Wow so so
1: how does the process work i mean um like who how does it work from maybe a a person who needs assistance's perspective and and what sort of determines like who gets money and how much they get and and all that kind of stuff
0: yeah Uh, one of the things that i i always like to say first and foremost is we are we are not a first-come 1st serve organization we are a crisis relief organization and that was again, one of those things that we did not change during this time. And I'm so glad that we didn't uh, in retrospect. Um, so so if someone applies immediately, their application is screened. They apply online. Their application is screened and it's screened for urgency. So we have a whole step of levels. Um, if it's life and death, obviously we have a code red. That means everybody drops everything and we get you money. We get you money now. Um, and then code orange, code yellow, et cetera. So the the calls, if you will, are answered um, in in level of urgency. And so, uh, for instance, we just had a a big life and death um, that came across on Wednesday of last week, Uh, a gentleman who had contracted a virus that had started eating his brain and then his autoimmune system started eating his brain, trying to attack the virus. Um, And of course the hospital is is asking him to leave or telling him he has to leave. And uh, they're essentially just throwing him into a hospice care situation. And we were able to fund him to the tune of $43,000 to make sure that he actually got into the place that could provide him a quality of life and really get him the therapy that he needs and deserves. So um, we call that a code red, for instance. Um, So that said, then you are assigned a case manager after you go through the screening process, that case manager works with you to build your case. Make sure that you have all of the documentation that you need. If you're asking for rent, we need a copy of your lease. Uh, it's pretty simple. If you, you know, if you're asking uh, for money for your car, same thing. Medical bills. We just need backup documentation. Pretty easy stuff. And then, uh, then that application goes into a processing. Processing is fast. Happens every day, five days a week, um, and votes go up five days a week to an anonymous uh, awards committee. They have no idea who you are. They don't even know which case manager is which cases. And then we send money to people literally every single weekday via ACH. Because again, we are a crisis relief organization and it is imperative that we get that money directly into these hands fast. And that's another thing that we did not change. We stayed the course on that. And so we send out we send out grant money every single day.
1: Wow. Okay. So, so since maybe March or April, right, since the start of the COVID crisis, I mean, how many people have you been able to assist?
0: Uh, thousands. Um, we are heading into about twenty five hundred um, families that we've been able to support throughout this time. And that, that the thing that the thing that makes us different, too, if I may, is. The reason why, um, again, we can't be a first come first serve is that we really do take each applicant as a whole human being, meaning we take their entire crisis into account. That means that we can't cap our gifts. So there's not, you know, a cap at five hundred dollars or or a thousand dollars. We again, we just funded somebody forty three thousand dollars. We funded up to one hundred thousand dollars for an individual whose life depended on that money. So um, that's probably that's one of the things that makes us really special and unique.
1: Right. Right. Um, so is it mostly like medical situations or, or housing or, or how does it kind of break down?
0: Um, I, I would say that during, well, prior to COVID it was mainly medical. Um, we are very used to responding to, um, natural disasters prior to COVID Uh, So it was either medical or um, home damage, that sort of thing, cars flooding, um, those sorts of things. And of course, during this crisis, uh, it's predominantly rent and mortgage. Um, But we have funded, God, there was a point in time when um, in New York City, you could not deliver your baby in a hospital. And we have funded midwives. We have funded all kinds of crazy, wonderful things during this time.
1: So obviously you guys had a a big media moment recently. Uh, David Chang wins a million dollars on who wants to be a millionaire. Southern smoke is the beneficiary. He's the first celebrity ever to win a million dollars on who wants to be a millionaire. What, I mean, beyond what, what that million dollars will do in terms of your ability to, to fund applicants. Like what did the media attention do for the organization?
0: Um, I think that more than anything, it brought people that we hadn't reached, uh, to our application portal. Um, we really try and it's, it's, it's sort of a challenge. You wouldn't necessarily foresee. One of the, one of our largest challenges is getting the word out so that people that work in this industry know that we're there. Um, so what we started seeing were, uh, more, um, more cooks apply, more servers apply, et cetera. Um, also, for whatever reason, and, and we're so glad that this happened, is more and more Spanish-speaking folks came forward, um, and so that that reach is just it's it's tough for us to get out into the community enough to where people actually trust us to apply and to you know just sort of set themselves in our hands and know that we're going to get them the help they deserve.
1: Yeah. I, I know, you know, I had Chris on the show last week, you know, one of the things I asked him about was, did, did you have any idea that that many people still watched Who wants to be a millionaire?
0: <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It was, it was, that part was crazy too. But then of course, you know, then he goes on Jimmy Kimmel and then he goes on the view and then he goes on all of these other talk shows. And so um, that, I mean, that's wild, right? I mean, that's, and it just, it cements our responsibility to these folks to continue to do the work that we're doing.
1: Yeah, have you, did it, did it bring in some additional donations, I hope?
0: Yeah, certainly it did. Um, you know, it's, it's so sort of funny what, when we had the five million donated to our Chicago fund, um, we could barely get people to talk about it. And then we got this amazing $1 million gift. And all of a sudden you start seeing your PayPal account go up and up and up. (laughs) And so I'm, I'm just, yeah, it's, it's been pretty fantastic. I, I don't know if we stopped smiling for a number of weeks after that.
1: Yeah. And I I mean, I know that you have some other initiatives apart from the emergency relief fund. Uh, One of them, for example, is you, you have secured, Uh, mental health care for restaurant workers statewide. Um, Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit and kind of how that came together and, and how that's going, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, We had been working on that for a couple of years. Uh, Actually we, we wanted to create an initiative following the passing of Anthony Bourdain um, for obvious reasons. And we had a, a closed door round table with a lot of the chefs that had come in from around the country that were participating in the food and wine festival that year. And, uh, we just sat down and we really talked about, you know, what was happening, why it was happening and what we could do about it as a foundation. And we essentially walked away with the fact that we were going to start a, a hotline just for food and beverage workers. And so I went through that process for like a year and finally got geared up to do this hotline. And um, I came in and I talked to all of these cooks and and, uh, folks, and I was so excited about it. And they were like, great, so this hotline, so is there like an app? And I said, no.
1: Right, right, can we text it? I mean, like, I don't want to call anybody. I'm a millennial, I don't (laughs) don't talk to
0: people on the phone. Eric, that's it. They literally said that they would never, especially if they're under duress, they would, never call someone. And it was just like, a, oh God, back to the drawing board. So we've, we've gone through some things trying to get this thing started. Um, so when COVID hit, we just hit it into high gear and uh, our friends at Mental Health America um, hooked us up with the University of Houston's um, psych department and their master's department. Uh, and it was a win-win because Their students needed the hours and we needed help for these people. Um, So yes, it's free uh, to people in Texas and their their kids. Um, It is at capacity. Uh, We do have limited capacity. We are trying to rectify that um, as much as we can. I don't know if we're going to stick to the university model and I'm just being totally transparent. and we are trying to now that we've we've done this first step, trying to figure out what our next steps are, and how quickly and how responsibly we can grow nationwide with this effort. Right. But I don't have an answer for you right now. Right. I mean, right. It's, right.
1: Whether, <laughs> right. Whether you whether you start with universities in other cities or or, right. I mean, you know, all of these um, professors and psychiatrists have you know, academic relationships, right? People they trained with, people they've written papers with. So, you know, you, I mean, there's certainly a path to grow it. It's just yeah. a question of, you know, finding people who are interested and, and have the capacity to do it.
0: Yeah, and there are, I mean, I'll just be totally transparent. They, there have been some challenges that we didn't anticipate for one. Um, when it's, then when the semester is over, uh, those students go away. And people start with new students. And that was not something that I anticipated. Um, So, you know, we're learning as we go and we're facing those challenges head on.
1: Right, right. You build a rapport with the counselor and then four months later, they're gone and you got to start over. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Uh, What are some of the other initiatives you're working on? I mean, what uh, how would you kind of like to see the organization grow you know, especially as we as restaurants reopen and and we all get vaccinated, and and so the the immediate needs of the last year become less urgent.
0: So um, one of the biggest things that we're doing right now is we are about to roll out um, a financial um, I don't want to say counseling a financial support information support program where we are actually talking to people about. What to do prior to a crisis. And what I mean by that is, before a natural disaster, what are those documents that you should hang on to, right? What's that one lockbox that you have in your house that you grab before you go? Um, what does that look like? What should be in there? Um, and then the next is what to do during crisis. For instance, you know, if you're having to choose between bills, which bills do you pay? Which ones do you let go? We see you see a lot of unfortunate decision-making there. And it's just because people don't know, you know, do they pay off their student loans right now or do they, do they let the moratorium build on their, their rent to a point where they can't climb out of that hole later on. Uh, And then the last tier is what to do once the quote crisis is over, how do you dig yourself out of that hole? Um, For instance, if you own your home, you sell that asset, should you hang on to it, etc.? cetera. So, um, that is the next big, uh, rollout for us. Um, I was working on starting veteran programs prior to COVID. Uh, I think that it's a really big initiative that we have to take on because the food and beverage industry is the largest employer of veterans. And, um, you know, we just want to make sure that we develop strategic partnerships. Uh, that really embrace that and provide the help and support that they need and deserve. Um, And then lastly, right now, and this is brand new and I don't know if it's going to come to fruition or not, but um, I, we really want to start working with children um, and teaching them about the food and beverage industry, the careers that are available there. Uh, One of the, organizations that we're partnering with right now uh, for education purposes, not children, is the WSET program that is run out of the Roots Fund. um, And that is to help people of color um, who want to go through the master sommelier program called WSET um, to be able to facilitate that education training. So uh, we've embarked on that too. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just you know, just a couple. Of, just you'll you'll stay busy. You're, you're figuring it out. You won't you won't be bored.
0: <laughs> no, no, we won't be bored. We love what we do. You know, I mean, the more the more we can do, the the better off everybody is, and and that just you know, we live for that.
1: Well, and you have been really fortunate to forge some of these partnerships nationwide, yeah. whether it's with the the restaurant workers or the uh, or that Chicago fund. I mean that that is a really impressive initiative, right? $5 million for, just for people in Chicago.
0: Yeah. Just for people who work or worked in Cook County. Um, it's, it's wild. And honestly, I cannot take much credit for that other than having a really good pitch for that donor. <laughs> <when> they <call>. <laughs> <laughs> um, The James Beard, uh, foundation was the one that turned them on to us. Um, they wanted somebody that already had an operating system in place, um, and they, they chose us and that was just a huge, uh, responsibility and honor. Um, and so far so good. However, I will say that that challenge that I talked about earlier, uh, with getting the word out to the right folks, that is something, um, that we are just, I mean, every day we are beating down doors and partnering with all kinds of like-minded nonprofits and things. And so um, you know, the more people apply to that fund, the better. I I just, I want to see, I want to see that fund run out of money and, you know, go asking for more. That's what I want to see from that fund.
1: I mean, do you, do you hope to do other city specific funds? I mean, would you like to do Los Angeles or New York or? Uh,
0: First of all, let me say this. First of all, I want to do Houston and that is a shared goal of, Chris Shepard and myself, obviously we fund nationally. So, you know, this doesn't limit anyone, but I would like to have a very Houston specific fund, but yes, we already have an Austin fund. Uh, we set up the Austin fund immediately when South by Southwest was canceled. And we thought that was the worst thing that was going to happen during COVID. Right. <laughs> and then, um, we have several other funds. Emerald Lagasse's foundation helped us set up a fund just for Gulf coast restaurant workers, Um, And we're working on some other very specific ones right now. Hopefully Napa is going to come through soon. Um, So, so yes, I, I am very, very excited about hopefully um, having a Houston fund. That would be my next big win uh, for Southern smoke for sure.
1: All right. And then, and then I have to ask you, I I know you're not, you're not a psychic, you can't see the future, but do you think we'll have a Southern smoke festival in 2021?
0: Uh, You know, more than anything, I hope. However, the challenge that we face right now is a very, very simple one on a human level, and that is that would require Chris Shepard asking his friends to leave their restaurants, get on a plane, come cook, uh, and that's that's tough. You know, I mean, they're. Their attention is is on their businesses and keeping the, the lives of their employees safe as safe as possible. Um, so, so he's he's in a waiting game with that, and um, and we'll see how quickly this world sort of facilitates a healthy place to travel and and uh, a healthy place for people to operate their restaurants. So, uh, until that's done, though, we just we would never put that pressure on. On them, we can't. I mean, it, it would absolutely go against everything that we stand for if we if we were tone deaf in any way. So um, we'll wait and see.
1: Okay, but but can I, that, that is a very reasonable answer and a very practical answer. I just want Chris Bianca to come make me pizza again from a, a wood-fired yeah. oven. That,
0: so bad, so badly. You know, I want all I don't, of his pizza. We need his pizza during COVID.
1: Right, I, I don't stand, right? I don't get in that giant line for the Franklin barbecue brisket, even though it's very delicious. It is very delicious. But uh, I go back for thirds on the Chris Bianco pizza.
0: Yes, I, yeah, I do too. I mean, it is it is just one of the most fantastic things ever. I know people who literally, if they are in the area, they who was it the other day that I was reading this on social media and they were on the way to the airport and they called in their order, grabbed the pizza from Bianco's, and literally ate it in the car, a whole pie on the way to the airport because they could not leave Phoenix without having some of that pizza.
1: Yeah, I, I, I did not see that. That did not cross my particular social media. <laughs> but that, that's my attitude. Those people are my heroes. Yeah, same. All right. Well, Catherine, thank you. This has been this has been really good. Is there is there anything you want to discuss that I haven't asked you about?
0: Ah. Uh, um... No, I just really appreciate you, you know, giving us a little a little spotlight so that we can reach as many people as possible and you know, if if there's somebody out there that's in need, please apply and if you have a little extra, please give. That's it.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I you know, I've been a a, a fan of the festival and and a supporter of the organization from yes. from my little platform and and I even took a little of my my stimulus money uh, back in the spring. And I, I kicked a little bit to Southern smoke, not, not a million you know, dollars, not, uh, <laughs> not enough to send anybody to the hospital for a week, but, but you know, just a, a, a little gesture. We're all in this together.
0: But that's, you know, and that's it. And it's really the million dollars is a fantastic, wonderful gift, but most of this funding we, we've been able to distribute uh, over 4.7 million now during COVID. And most of that is built from those donations. So, you know, no, no amount is too small. And we actually, we love it when we see a $10 donation uh, because we know that somebody really just wanted to put their heart in it. And, and that goes a long way. So thank you for your donation.
1: All right. Well, before I let you leave, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. (laughs) Okay. Catherine Lott, what is your favorite cookbook?
0: Uh, local by Chris Shepherd.
1: That's a good answer. Uh, <laughs> what is the first band you saw in
0: concert? Oh God, Chicago and the Beach Boys, <laughs> Double Bill.
1: What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-through.
0: Oh yeah, Whataburger for sure, and it's it's either the chicken strips or the number one with mayo instead of mustard. <laughs>
1: All right, and then who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present?
0: Oh man. Um, uh, Altuve, it's
1: a good answer, it's a perfectly respectable answer. And then
0: <laughs> finally, mixed
1: finally <laughs> when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go to toppings?
0: Um, oh god, pizzeria for the first time, I, I, I mean, the more naked, the better. I, I really just like to taste the stuff, so tomato, basil, and that's it. All right,
1: Catherine, give us the, the website and all the information for Southern Smoke.
0: Yeah, www.southernsmoke.org. Um, yeah, it's all there. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back. Next week.